God bless you guys. Let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, and this morning we conclude our series in biblical eschatology in a series we've entitled, The End is Only the Beginning. And at uh, the conclusion of our time together this morning, I'll let you know what we're doing next after this to kind of wrap it all up. As a Christian, we have been waiting in great anticipation for over 2,000 years the physical return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to this earth. It is something that produced great hope in the hearts of the first century church, for they fully believed that Jesus was going to return in their day. When we read the New Testament epistles, we often find within them language of anticipation, of immediacy, where they believed that the return of the Lord was imminent. And the realization of that caused them to consider the conduct in which they carried themselves as believers in Jesus Christ. For the Gospel of John even tells us that a rumor began in that time that John himself, the Apostle John, would not die physically before the return of Jesus Christ. So apparently everybody watched him very carefully and uh, said, well, you know, he's getting older, so the, the Lord must be uh, at, at hand. And of course, that wasn't true. That's not what Jesus was saying, but that's the way they interpreted it. 2,000 years now have passed, and I can say with certainty that we are 2,000 years closer than we've ever been before. And we have taken these last 16 weeks to study eschatology from a very um, high point of view, meaning we haven't gotten down into the different details uh, that we could drill down into, but we gave you a very overall arching perspective, really dealing with the meta-narrative of the entire understanding of biblical theology. And I've done this for a purpose and a reason which I'll explain at the end. But the title of the series, The End is Only the Beginning, really focuses on one of the aspects that is neglected in the study of biblical eschatology, and that is this. When people make their way to Revelation 19 and the return of Jesus Christ, it's almost as if they turn off at that point. It's He's arrived, he is physically returned, and again, we as Christians anticipate a physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Not a spiritual return that some other um, religions hold to of their Messiah, deity, or Eom, but as a result, we hold to a physical return of Jesus Christ as Christians. And many, when they get to Revelation 19, they just kind of stop the pursuit. But that's really when things really start getting good. Now, many are fascinated with the tribulation period, those chapters of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 19. But chapters 20, 21, and 22, for me as a believer in Jesus Christ, should be significantly important. Because the end is truly only the beginning. Our hope 
doesn't simply reside in the idea that as a Christian, one day I will be in heaven with the Lord for all eternity. But understanding that as a Christian, a new heaven and new earth shall be made for me by my Lord and Savior and my God. For me to dwell and for you to dwell for all eternity within. And so really we should be looking and trying to understand to the best of our ability what the new heaven and the new earth will be all about and like. Now last week I think we demonstrated that the language that... um, John had at his, uh, for his use of describing what he was seeing was, of course, greatly limited. Even though Greek is a much more sophisticated language than English is, he still couldn't properly describe for, with any uh, great nuance what he was seeing before him. And that's understandable because we would have that same problem today trying to explain Uh, some of the various cities that we may have seen that they have really no recollection of or no reference point within their mind to consider. But as we make our way into chapter 22, within the first five verses, again, just enough to whet your appetite, to get you thinking, to consider What comes next? You know, I've often seen when I've gone out to dinner, people who order appetizers, um, who at the last, you know, cheese stick being taken or the last, you know, uh, pop or whatever uh, being taken, there's this great disappointment in their face. It's just like, oh, that's the last one. Oh, man, I'm just so hungry. Do you not understand the concept of an appetizer? That is not your dinner. Your dinner should be still yet coming, unless you're cheap. Um, But that being said, um, there's just disappointment. And you see it. I I saw it the other day. Dean and I went out to a a neat little place in Schaumburg and had some fantastic tacos. And the person across from us, they had finished their appetizers, and then they began to look at ours. And I'm like, (laughs) okay. All right, let's say I paid eight bucks for them. Do I hear 10? Do I hear 12? But they were just so disappointed when they came to their last appetizer. And you know, when you come to verse five, you're almost like in that same position. It's like, oh, I want more. It's not enough. Whatever I just read sounds fantastic. You know, whatever I've just eaten has tasted wonderful, but I want more. And John begins to show us, as we move from the pinnacle of the mountain in which he overlooked the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, as you and I may be standing on Ellis Island looking onto the island of Manhattan and the incredible skyline of New York City, now John takes us from that vantage point to see the inner workings of the inter, uh, the inter area of the New Jerusalem as one being carried from Ellis Island to Central Park. Seeing it from a completely different perspective. And we notice that the garden that we were once banished from has been completely recreated. 
the garden where the fall of man took place and we had been ushered out of and banished from as God placed a cherubim, a cherubim, a cherubim before the entrance of the Garden of Eden as we were expelled in our sinful state. We now enter into a garden recreated in this new heavens and new earth. And access is free to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to notice the throne, the river, the light within this garden. We're going to notice the various elements that John brings to our attention. As we begin in verse 1, let's read the first five verses And he, that is the angel that is now showing these things to John, he says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. For they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Again, as we just get this glimpse of this inner area of the New Jerusalem, we see that we begin with this river that is spoken about in Zechariah, Isaiah, this river of life. Jesus spoke of the water, the living water that he would give to each and every individual that would come to him. The Bible tells us here that it's clear, it's pure, it's undefiled. It is unpolluted. It is perfect. Everything our current world is not is found in this new Jerusalem that has not been touched by sin or by death or the sorrow that sin and death brings upon God's creation. It's all that we could ever hope for and long for as Christians, knowing that this river is there for us to show us that the work that Jesus Christ began at the cross and emphasized with his resurrection now is truly done as he stated in chapter 21, where he says, it is done, it is finished. And not only have you as individuals been redeemed through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but now Jesus is renewing and restoring all of the creation that has been affected by the fall of man. And in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, there is no longer injustice and corruption There's no longer sadness and sorrow. There's no longer sickness and disease. There's no longer death. Everything is perfect in this new place that we are to dwell. 
When you study the Old Testament, you will realize, if you look closely, that the various walkways, pathways, roads, if you will, that the individuals traveled on in various times during the history of the Old Testament are all the same. Just like if we were to look at a map here of the United States of America, or of course we don't look at paper maps anymore, we rely on our GPS, and as a result, we allowed it to guide us from place to place to place. But in the Old Testament, the roads were connected by villages and towns, but most importantly, they were connected by sources of water. That individuals could travel a various amount of distance and yet be guaranteed that there was water when they got there. Because it was a necessity, obviously, traveling through the nomadic deserts that they had. Water was imperative, obviously, to their survival and their existence. And that's why where wells were hewn out and where places were established, roads would connect. And that's why you see these various areas talked about numerous times in the Old Testament. It was very similar to my parents in the 70s and 80s when we went on road trips. My dad would sit and study a map for weeks before we would leave, not looking for the you know, largest ball of twine so we could all be amazed by that historical site, but looking for the various rest stops to know how much farther it's going to be when my sister would begin from the very moment that we left the driveway, Dad, I have to go to the bathroom. My dad would literally mark the rest areas off So he knew how far it was, and he could tell her how many signs that she had to count, because, of course, there's the road signs with the miles on them, you know. All right, when we get to mile uh, 140, uh, there's a rest stop. We're at two now, and um, we'll get there sooner or later. And, you know, of course, my sister would then, maybe that's why my sister is the way she is today. Anyway, um, but it was the same thing for them. They could only travel so far through the course of a day, usually about 10 to 15 miles at the most before water became a great necessity. They could only carry so much due to its simple weight. And so when they saw these oasis in the middle of nowhere, it was sources of life for them. And that's the imagery that we continue with here in the book of Revelation. This life that Jesus gives us, eternal life. It's pure. It's without sin. It's without the sorrow and the suffering that comes with the sin. And notice that this particular river comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God the Father and Jesus Christ, His Son. It is the life in which He offers for all eternity. Now in the middle of the street, on verse 2, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. The tree of life, of course, was one of two trees specifically mentioned in the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was one tree that they were not to eat from, that of course they did. Just like kids today, you tell them the one thing not to touch in the living room, and that's the one thing that they're going to touch, you know. And so Adam and Eve fell, and before they ate of the tree of eternal life, meaning Uh, the, the ability to retain eternal life, God expelled them from the garden. Why? 
because he didn't want to leave them in that condition. He didn't want that sin nature to continue forever. It's a theological paradigm. It's something you really need to consider and to think through. But now the tree of life that they were once banished from is now freely accessible to you and I because of the work that Christ has done in us. Eternal life. Allowing us to enjoy eternal life through the restored righteousness of God in our lives due to what Christ has done for us. Meaning we don't have to live eternally in a sinful state. Very interesting to consider. But he goes on now to explain even further that not only, excuse me, not only was the tree of life there that bore 12 fruits, meaning one for every month, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Trees were known to produce fruit during certain times of the year, and so they could guarantee that they would have fruit during those months that the tree would, of course, produce fruit. But that fruit would only last so long, right? And then it would rot and it would spoil and they had to eat it very quickly. It's like coming home from your trip to the grocery store and you buy the yellowest bananas that you can possibly find. And you know what happens. You bring them home, you put them on the counter, and of course you don't eat them fast enough. And with a day and a half, they're black, right? And then you learn that the next time you go, hey, I'm going to buy the green ones this time and give myself a little bit of a chance to get to them. Here John is saying that the trees produce the fruit continuously, without ending. And they'll never go bad because there's always another one to be had. It never stops. And therefore, eternal life is guaranteed. That's the imagery that he's putting forward here. For you and I in the New Jerusalem, in the place that God has prepared for us for all eternity. And we can enjoy of this freely with our Lord. But the healing of the nations come through the leaves of the tree. And the word healing there in the Greek is actually the Greek word where we get the word therapeutic from. It means soothing. It means relieving of the pains and the suffering. We have just come through the great tribulation period. And the suffering and the pain that has accumulated during that time has been immense. There are those who have received Christ in those seven-year period of time and may have had to lose their life as a martyr for Christ to retain it. But yet now, the leaves of these trees will, are like a balm to the sorest of skin. And there will be no more pain and suffering. That's the imagery that John is giving us here. That, that's the uh, picture that he's painting for us. And, and you can see that it is limited in its ability to truly show and communicate all that he probably desires to communicate. But we get enough of the taste to say, yes, I want more. And then he continues by telling us, and there shall be no more curse. The effect of the fall has been completely eliminated and is no more. The curse obviously is the moment that man fell that plunged the world into sin and to suffering and to death. 
But that sin, suffering, and death didn't limit itself only to the human race. It affected everything of God's creation. It permeated every aspect of it. And as a result, the whole world, as Paul writes in Romans, groans under the weight of the travail of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow. And no, this isn't uh, Mother Earth that some have uh, believe are, um, is mad and causing the wildfires in California. I'm talking about the decay of our planet. I'm talking about the decay. And when I'm talking about global warming and so forth, is global warming real? Yeah, Peter talks about it. God's going to burn up the entire world and then create a brand new one. It's complete global warming to the utter sense. But all of that has now passed and will not happen again. There will not be another opportunity for sin and death. There will not be another opportunity for suffering and sorrow. That's it. The curse has been alleviated. And what's miraculous about all of this is that 2,000 years ago, in a city called Jerusalem, here in a small little nation of Israel, a carpenter from Nazareth, came and was brought before the, the Roman Empire and the ruling class of his society. He was brought before the religious leaders and completely rejected for who he truly was. And each and every one of these steps brought him to the feet of the cross. And then he was placed upon the cross. And in those hours of darkness that the Gospels reiterate to us. The greatest exchange was being taken place that we today don't even truly comprehend and won't comprehend until I believe we see the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and so forth. As people stood around him trying to understand exactly what was taking place before them, Some said he was crazy. Some believed he was just leading an insurrection. Some believed that he was the Messiah. But he's dying. And in that moment, in that moment in history, now, we don't have any idea how many people throughout the course of the human history have been executed, do we? We have no idea the number of people. And yet this one 33-year-old carpenter's execution has reverberated through the annals of history to the point that we still today in our culture, in our nation, remember this moment as significant in the history of the world. But little did we know that he was eliminating the effects of the curse at that moment. That he was paying for the uh, repercussions and the consequences of of the curse at that moment on our behalf. And now you and I, due to that moment in history and our faith and trust placed in him and his true identity, can now be guaranteed that for all eternity we can enjoy the new heaven and the new earth that he has provided for us. That is mind-blowing to me. He never traveled 100 miles farther from where he was born. There was no internet 
radio, TV, television. It was incredible. And yet, at that moment in time, God pierced the veil of this world, introducing his son by a star. And yet, through him, all of this has begun. And when I think of this and I meditate on this, and then I think of those words that Christ heralded throughout his ministry, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It just brings shivers to me. And now you and I are products of that new creation already. For those who have come to Christ, old things have passed away, all things have become brand new. That's exactly what it says in Revelation chapter 21. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. It's incredible to consider. And as a result, the healing of the nations have taken place. There is no more curse, but on the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. When he came to this earth, he said so meekly and humbly, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And yet we as Christians often look to be served rather than to serve others. It's ironic, isn't it? It shouldn't be. But he said that. But now all things are placed under his feet as the Father had promised for the work that he had accomplished. Things are done. There's a very obscure verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We looked at it as we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night. It's one of the greatest insights to eschatology, but it's in a chapter wrapped around the theological development of the resurrection. But I want to bring this to your attention for your consideration. Because Paul introduces this here, and he wants us to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day has guaranteed what he writes next. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 28, I'll read them for you. Paul writes, he says, Then comes the end, when he, that is God, delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father. He, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now, when all things are made subject to him, I'm... I'm convinced that Paul's favorite author was Dr. Seuss sometimes. Um, Then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. I want you to chew on these verses. I want you to think about what the implications of these things are. And this is the fulfillment of it. That everything that Christ has purchased back in his crucifixion has now come to full completion here at this point. That all authority over this world has been eliminated apart from 
the authority of God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Interesting that when you look at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness, when Satan offers the kingdoms of this world to Jesus, if he will simply bow down and worship him, of course, Jesus refutes that, rejects that, because, of course, we are to bow to no one except our God. But God, Jesus didn't dispute the fact that Satan was truly the ruler of this world. Now, this is an idea that we as Christians, I believe, sometimes forget. And the ruler of this world is also writing, authoring, and uh, the architect of the philosophies and the ideologies of this world. That's where they all derive from. And as a result, Jesus, through his crucifixion and resurrection, has vanquished all of this authority and has restored it to God because God originally gave it to man to have dominion over this earth. Man forfeited that right by falling into sin. And as a result, Satan then became the ruler of this world. Now God himself has paid the price himself on our behalf to return all of these things back onto God the Father. That's the full concept of what's happened here. It's incredible to think about. But in this place, the throne of God will be there. He will be in all authority. And we shall serve him. In verse 4, they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light for, uh, of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever and ever and in the greek it is in the eternal perspective it means it just keeps going on ever and ever nothing is to ever hinder this again and then he said to me in verse six these these words are faithful and true and the lord god of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly or quickly take place Behold, he says, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I am saddened by the number of churches that will not dig into the book of Revelation. From the very beginning to the very end of the book, a blessing is promised to those who read and understand it. But in my personal conversations with colleagues in other churches, when I talk about eschatology or revelation, they really feel uncomfortable exploring it. And as a result, they neglect it. They avoid it. And yet God is saying, no, there is a true blessing to know and to understand, a happiness, a joy that comes about from understanding this. Now, is he talking about the joy arising from the tribulation period described 6 through 19? Well, I'm not, I don't think that, but certainly when it comes to 19 and the return of Jesus Christ, we can say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. When we talk about the millennial kingdom, we can say, praise God and hallelujah for that. When we talk about the new heavens and the new earth, we can say, praise the Lord, hallelujah to that. There's a lot to be had in this book. It should not be avoided. It should be read. It should be known. And in verse 8, now I, John, saw and heard these things. 
And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. I don't blame John for that, do you? I mean, an angel shows up in my house, and you know, if I don't pass out, I can cancel my appointment with the cardiologist. I'm sorry, I mean, these guys are not to be messed with. But notice what the angel does here. And then he, that is the angel, said to me, that is John, see that you do not do that. Fall down and worship me, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. And then look at what he says here. Worship God. A fundamental fallacy with the Mormon church is the worship of the angel Moroni. The Mormons will debate out of the King James Version of the Bible, so I love to take them to portions of Scripture like this one. But I also like to show them when Paul says that either I or an angel of light come to you with any other gospel, let them be accursed. I like to show them that an angel can be uh, Satan in deception. But here the angel would not accept the worship of John clearly understanding that this is what got Satan in trouble from the very beginning. And John is corrected by the angel at this moment, but then there's that adoration. Worship God. Worship God. Whenever I read about individuals who have near-death experiences and so forth, I get very leery when they say they interact with angels that tell them to worship anything but God. Because that seems to contradict completely the role of angels throughout the Bible. Angelology is a fascinating study and should be studied by Christians. They certainly exist. And there are some who believe there are scriptures that indicate that we all have a guardian angel. And I think those are interesting to consider. I thought I had one. His name was Fred. Literally, his name was Fred. He weighed all of about 130 pounds. He was about six foot he was about six foot high, he was, very, he was thin as a rail, and he had an afro. And, um, he, and, and I'm not kidding, everywhere that I would go with my friends, there would be this guy, Fred. We met him at a Christian concert. He didn't have anyone to hang out with, so we hung out with him. And then all of a sudden, everywhere we went, all of a sudden, Fred would show up. And I was convinced. I said to my friends, I'm like, there's ours, you know. Some people get Gabriel, other people get Michael, we get Fred. I don't know where it says that we land on the totem pole of importance, but he was always there. One time, and this is not, I'm not kidding, we were in Wisconsin, driving to an event in Wisconsin in the city of Milwaukee, And we were lost. We had gotten lost. This is before GPS. We actually had to rely on left, right, north, south, east, west. And sure enough, as we were driving through Milwaukee, I'm frustrated now because we're already late. And I look, I wasn't driving, I was in the passenger seat. I look to my right and guess who's walking on the street? I go to my friend, Brian, we might as well just follow Fred because he's probably going to lead us right to where we need to go. But there he was, Fred. Angels are a fascinating subject and should be studied, but never worshipped. Never worshipped. And he said to me, verse 10, do not seal the words of the prophecy, 
of this book, for the time is at hand. Unlike Daniel, who was instructed to seal the words of his prophecy, for the time had not yet come, the end had not yet come, uh, Daniel 12.9, I believe it is. Now we are indicating, have been indicated, that this is meant to be understood. So verse 11, he who un, is unjust, let him remain unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him also be righteous. Still, he who is holy, let him still be holy. Meaning, it is a very poetic and eloquent way of saying, it is now time to decide who you will follow. He is saying, be true to who you are. Don't deceive yourself. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, don't convince yourself that you are. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then act as you have been called to act. That's what he's saying here in these words. It's a hard section to translate in the Greek. But that's what he is referring to here at this moment. And then Jesus says to John in verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This idea of reward is something else that Jesus from the very beginning told us to be aware of and to be conscientious of because where our treasures are, so our heart shall be also, he said. Paul the Apostle wanted to reiterate this to the Gentile Christians in Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, when he said, let us all understand that for believers we will stand what is before what is known the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And we will be evaluated for everything that we have done in the new life in which God has given us. And I believe that evaluation is spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It isn't a matter of our salvation. That has been bought and paid for through the person of Jesus Christ. But what we have done with the new life in which he has given us. Have we truly denied ourselves, taken up our cross and following after him? Do we view the poor, the helpless, the same way Christ did? Are we concerned about the widows and orphans as Christ was and his church was? And are we adhering to those acts of righteousness that God has asked us to do, not for the obtaining and maintaining of our salvation, but for the validation, meaning it demonstrates that we truly are saved. And here, Jesus says, in my return, I will bring my reward for you with me. Now, what shall we do? Now, the Bible tells us that these rewards will be given in the form of a crown. But what do we do with that crown? Well, it's interesting that Revelation chapter 4 indicates that our last act of worship and adoration is throwing the various crowns that we have been given by Christ at the feet of Christ. Being that we understand that all that He has done in and through us, it was truly Him who has done it. And we are simply honoring Him for who He is. Fascinating. Blessed are those, verse 14, who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. 
but outside are dogs. And that was a term that was used for those immoral individuals. Sorcerer is the word um, pharmakia in the Greek. Sorcery was often at the hand of drug use. Of course, that's where we get the word pharmakia from. Sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify or to bear witness to these things in the churches. For I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And this, the invitation is now given again. And the Spirit says, and the bride says, come. And let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. This weekend in Chicago, this young man who's been going around from city to city in a movement called Let Us Worship, very interesting things have been taking place. And maybe you didn't hear this on the news. I didn't until after the fact. He came to Chicago. And people gathered from all over the city to come and worship the Lord. And they were praising the Lord in many various ways. And it was a very powerful moment. And individuals from the organization of Black Lives Matter came to confront the worshipers. And they initially aggressively confronted the worshipers. But then, amazingly, some, after hearing the gospel, repented and gave their lives and hearts to Jesus Christ and were baptized right there. Now, I was a little concerned because the water that they were pouring into the baptismal looked like it all had been refrigerated. And uh, then you know if somebody's really committed uh, to the Lord if they get baptized in that type of temperature of water. But they were freely getting baptized. And you could see God doing such an incredible work. We talked about this at the youth group on Friday. You know, God uses the simplest people sometimes in the most extraordinary ways, doesn't he? This young man has played his guitar so much that there's actually blood on the, the face of the guitar because his hands get bloody. He just keeps playing so much, so much during the course of the night. And while people were getting saved and being baptized and God moving in the manner that he did, Mayor Lori Lightfoot sent the police to shut it all down. She had the police take away their equipment, put it in the back of a truck. They did not resist. They were peaceful. They were loving to the police officers. You could tell that the police officers did not want to do what they were being asked to do. They were like, this is so sad. One even apologized. So after their equipment was taken, they all went home and just sulked. No, they used whatever they could find to continue praising Jesus. They couldn't stop what God was doing. And the police officers had no desire to. But let me ask you a question. What kind of world are we living in where businesses can be destroyed and looted and robbed without any repercussions? But something like that where the city comes together and there was every nationality there worshiping God. It was incredible to see. I mean, I wish I would, I may have even driven in there myself to participate in it. 
And when they started again, the officers did what they were told. They took the equipment, but they didn't arrest the people who were still going. And people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the lives changed at that moment forever? Individuals who will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. And Christianity always begins with an invitation. And here in our text, it ends with one. For I testify to everyone, verse 18 in conclusion, everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Actually, this is not the first time this is said. We find this in the book of Deuteronomy, stated very clearly for us. As God says in Deuteronomy 4.2, He says, You shall not add to the words for which I command you, nor shall you take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you. You don't mess with the word of God, adding to it or taking from it in any way. A warning is given, a dire warning. God desires these words to remain intact. The question then scholars ask, is he speaking of the whole Bible or is he just speaking of Revelation? When John wrote that, he undoubtedly was thinking of the letter in which he was writing. But since we find that same statement in Deuteronomy and in Revelation, the beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible, we can deduce from that that God is referring to the entirety of Scripture. We cannot pick and choose what we desire to believe as Christians, but we must submit ourselves to God's Word in every area of life. Sometimes that's much harder and much easier said than done. But then he goes on to say in verse 20, He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Maranatha. Amen. Even so, Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. John Wolverd wrote when he, he states, Probably no other book of Scripture more sharply contracts the blessed lot of the saints and the fearful future of those who are lost. No other book of the Bible is more explicit in its description of judgment. On the one hand, and the saints' eternal bliss on the other. What a tragedy that so many pass by this book and fail to fathom its wonders and truth, thereby impoverishing their knowledge and hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's people who understand and appreciate these wonderful promises can join in with John in his prayer when he says, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, Come, Lord Jesus. For 16 weeks now, I've taken you through biblical eschatology. I've done so purposely because I wanted to give you a proper theological context to therefore be able to discuss what's happening in our world today. 
I did not want to be accused of creating a context for current events that the Bible does not lay out or be accused of reading something into the scripture's event list unnaturally or in a manner of eisegesis. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about what in the world is going on in our world. And we're going to be looking at some of the things that are taking place now from a biblical theological point of view. We're going to see how they play into the, uh, the landscape that is being painted before us, the stage being set for the return of Jesus Christ. In all of what's happening in our world and in our nation today, there was a treaty signed in Israel called the Abraham Accord. This is extraordinary. But yet, if you don't have a theological understanding, you can't put these things in proper context, can you? Why are we talking about socialism and Marxism? Why are we talking about these things? Why are we confronted with a worldview now, all of a sudden, that for many seems to have come out of nowhere? It hasn't come out of nowhere. It's been around for years. It's now just come to the surface. One of the great failures of 2020 will be the failure of the media here in in the United States of America. They should be held accountable for the freedoms that they've been given and the irresponsibility in which they've conducted themselves as journalists. It's unbelievable what's happening around us. Now, why do we talk about these things in church? Because I'm a dad of a 22-year-old daughter. And I hope one day she gets to enjoy a nation that we've enjoyed. We're not perfect as a nation. We have a lot of problems. We need to fix those problems, right? But I still believe we live in the best nation in the entire world. I still believe that. We're not perfect. But we need to understand from a global position and be so thankful for what we do have. So what in the world's going on starting next week? And I hope that these sessions, individual sessions, have helped you understand eschatology more thoroughly. I hope it's encouraged you to read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I pray that it has increased your anticipation of our Lord's return. And I pray that we will live in the knowledge of his imminent return and therefore reflect him in all that we do say and think while we are here as ambassadors for Jesus Christ.